And so I um, said, I'm going to clean up my act. So I stopped doing drugs. I stopped getting in trouble and I kind of focused on my studies. Welcome back to another episode of Unbeatable. When you see Diane in the grocery store, you would never imagine that the woman that you're looking at grew up in this traumatic childhood home, an alcoholic, abusive father, in and out of gangs, was expelled from school, and at 15 years old, was the person who found her mother after she took her own life. Diane's taken all of that childhood trauma, she's learned from it, she's grown from it, and she's now helping hundreds of thousands of children and adults learn how to deal with their trauma also. I can't wait to introduce you to my guest in this episode, Diane Moroni. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Strucker. Thanks for tuning in all the way from Denver, Colorado. Been looking forward to this episode with you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so I have been doing a little bit of research about you. I am so impressed by all that you've been doing um, with the Imagine Project, and I can't wait to get to that part of your story. Um, but we wouldn't be doing the Imagine Project justice if we didn't talk a little bit about your upbringing. Um, because as I did a little bit of research, it sounds like you've gone through some pretty stuff, tough uh, I just said stuff tough. You've gone through some pretty tough stuff along the way. Um, so can you tell folks, just to get a chance to get to know you a little bit, tell everybody a little bit about your upbringing. You grew up in Denver, but tell them what life was like for you when you were um, a, a teenager, a child and a teenager. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in Denver outside. Um, well, I was actually in Denver proper at the time. But I had a family with uh, two older sisters, and we lit, grew up in a pretty rough scenario. Uh, not a lot of money. I wouldn't say that we were poor, but we never, you know, never had any extra money. But the hardest part was that my parents never really should have gotten married, and they fought like crazy. My dad was a raging alcoholic and was abusive to my mom. Wow. And there was many times that I was hiding you know, from him and from the police and, you know, just uh, some really scary, scary times for a little five, seven, 10, 15 year old sort of thing. And um, when, it, you know, my mom was pretty severely depressed, having no way out, um, understanding, you know, Oh what yeah. Trapped in that kind of marriage. She was really trapped. And my dad was a good man, but he was, you know, he was uneducated. He was um, not, he was overtaken by his addiction to alcohol and didn't really have a good job. So it was pretty rough. Um, I had some pretty abusive boyfriends as well. And, um, you know, just the scenario of who are you in a world where you don't understand the world, yeah. you know, when nobody's guiding you to hold your hand and say, you know, this is right, this is wrong. And so I was in trouble in school a lot. I was suspended from school five times. I oh was, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I was um in a um gang. I this always surprises everybody because I don't look like I was in a gang, but it was, you know, wasn't the gangs of today. We didn't use guns or knives or anything. We fought with our fists, uh, pulled a lot of hair. 
um, you know, <laughs> those were some of the suspensions of from school. I'm sorry to laugh at this, but for those of you who are driving in your car and listening to this podcast right now, you don't get a chance to see this video of her. And if you see Diane in the grocery store, this is the furthest thing from a woman that's a <laughs> gang member um, that you can imagine. Um, it really but it is. sounded like you had a really tough childhood. You just said this, your parents started fighting with each other all the way back to five years old. Is that right? Oh, it was probably when I was first born. Huh. I'm sure it was. I mean, I don't have a memory of that, but um, they were never to be married. They had to get married. My mom was pregnant with my oldest uh, sister. One of those shotgun weddings. Yeah, yeah, so it was rough. And then when I was, the hardest part, one of the hardest parts of my childhood was when I was 15, I came home and found my mom after she committed suicide, which was, uh, you know, a traumatic event that impacts anyone and uh, extreme impact, you know, and I don't think I really started to heal from that until I was in my 40s, but um, it was pretty tough. And so you found her, you were the one that found your mother right after she took her yes. own life. Yes, I came. It was actually ninth grade ditch day. I was 15, just turned 15. And uh, it was ninth grade ditch day. And we had, we were hanging out at a friend's house and I came home. Um, hadn't heard from my mom that morning. Wasn't sure where she was. I kept trying to call her. thought maybe she'd gone to work early and came in and she wasn't in the house and went out. For some reason, I went out to check the garage. and That's where you she, found her? Yeah, that's where I found her. Yeah, without getting into all of the terrible details, what was your first reaction when you saw the, your mother uh, had taken her own life? Intense fear and confusion and running from house to house trying to find help. Come help me, come help me. You know, and they, somebody did call 911 and um, they came and then it was, it was just awful. So and your, then, your father would have been at work and your sisters would have been at school when you found her, right? So you're basically completely by yourself. Well, my sisters were out of school already. So I was living there with my mom alone. My dad was actually out of the house. They uh -huh. were attempting to get a divorce. And, um, so I was the only one that was there and they eventually all came and my neighbors came to, you know, but there was, no comforting uh, 15 oh, year old who just witnessed that. And so that was um, a really uh, sad education on trauma yeah. in childhood. I'm also thinking you just described you're alone at home with her when this happens. You don't really have anybody. And I don't mean can't go to their house, but you don't have anybody to lean on after your mother's gone, right? I mean, your father oh. and is kind of separated and an alcoholic, an abusive alcoholic. So who do you turn to when you lose your mother like this? Well, I had some good friends in my little gang group. <laughs> and they were actually, uh, you know, we were decent people and we didn't, you know, we they did rally around me. So some of their parents did rally around me. And, um, but mostly I was alone. I mean, I considered suicide that summer afterwards quite really? a few times. And yeah. thankfully, you know, I never did. I couldn't make myself do it. So, um, so anyway, I, I just kind of trudged through it. And there was actually, you know, I was in trouble a lot. And I was... Yeah, you got the, suspended from school five times. That's, uh, I, I don't trouble. know if that's a record or not, but it ought to be. 
Yeah. And so it was, you know, for me, that was a lot. And for my family and um, my, my dad never even graduated from high school. So there wasn't a lot of education in our uh-huh. family. So, but I was smart enough. So I, um, something switched. I, I felt such guilt after my mom died that I said, well, this is my fault. I'm going to, it wasn't my fault, but that's what you felt. Uh, yeah. Because, sure. And so I, um, said, I'm going to get, I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to clean up my act and I'm going to, uh, so I stopped doing drugs. I stopped getting in trouble and I kind of focused on my studies and I was so bored. I'm like, well, I'm going to see if I can get straight A's for a semester. And I got straight A's one semester in high school. And then, um, I ended up, a friend of mine said, you know, you should really, uh, apply for college. And I'm like, college, you know, nobody in my family goes to college, but I did. I applied because she said I should. And then um, she said, there's this uh, scholarship out there, the Mason's Benevolent Fund Scholarship that is for people who've been through tragedy and you should apply for that. So I did. And I got it. I was one of, uh, I think, five in the state of Colorado that got it. Yeah. And it's because I had cleaned up my act and they saw that they, they came to interview me at my home and they saw my dad was such a mess. And so I think that him, I, at first I thought, oh, well, it's over. He was such a mess. They're not going to give it to me. Well, I think they gave it to me because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so anyway, I got a full ride scholarship and I ended up graduating from college and eventually got my master's. Wow. So, Look at you. Uh, yes. Uh, I want to make I- sure people didn't just hear you say that this, listen, this wasn't a pity based scholarship. You got that scholarship based on merit because you really did turn things around in your life, not just academically, but in a really difficult uh, childhood and a really difficult home, you turned things around. That's kind of what made you one of the five people to receive the scholarship, right? Well, I would say that's true. I mean, it really looked like that on the outside anyway. You know, in my heart, I was still in turmoil, but I was plugging all my energy into success, you know, and achieving because that's what I could do. Thankfully I was smart enough to do that. And, um, so it, it happened for me. And so I went and uh, went to school, nursing school and that was completely paid for, which was fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't miss the fact that you found your mother, um, in the garage at 15, but you said this has stuck with you into your forties. Um, as much as you're able to, can you describe kind of how that impacted you personally and your view of the world? The trauma that you experienced, it stayed with you for decades. So describe that a little bit. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, not just, but I've gotten to the point where I can talk about it without feeling my heart turning and yeah. turning, and, you know, the inner turmoil that happens when you have trauma. But I would say uh, it made me feel like I wasn't worthy of being on this earth because my mom didn't think so because she didn't stay for me. So then why would I be worth anything? You know, it made me often struggle with depression, um, anxiety, which I t- didn't understand. Uh-huh. But just how I viewed myself in the world, you know, that I wasn't enough probably was a, a good way to sum it up. Yeah, I never really thought about that. But if you're the only one living at home and your mother just took her own life, it it would 
it, it would be natural to feel like, I guess I'm not enough for her or for the world or else she would have stayed around and she didn't. Right. And I can't imagine how much that impacted your self-worth. Um, it really did. And it, uh, it showed up in boyfriends. It showed up in friends and, uh, you know, how I didn't always collect the best people in my life. Um, yeah. Sounds <laughs> but, like it. Uh, fortunately, I married a really good man and I've been married for a long time. But um, that's also had, you know, its struggles from oh, yeah. uh, each other in every marriage. But anyway, I, you know, I think, but it also pushed this side of me to say, I don't want to be that, you know, and how can I not be that? And when I was, you know, I mean, sometimes you're not weak enough to really, I mean, you're not strong enough. You feel very weak and unable to push yourself, but that's when you, uh, you know, try to find help or you just make it through the day sort of thing. And then you, then you can find that strength again, somewhere you always find that strength again. And I, you know, I think I, I really listen to my gut a lot. And I think that's really, um, what helped me get through things too. Yeah. When you say, listen to your gut for people that they know the phrase, but they don't understand how to do that. What do you mean? So I think the best way to explain it is when you listen to your gut, if you're thinking about something, think about doing something, uh, or making a decision about something and you just feel your body. And if it says, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that, then go forward. But if it's uh, there's something in you that's screaming, saying no, no, or if it gets tight, it gets uncomfortable. That's kind of listening to your gut and Uh saying, that's not okay. Don't do that. And, you know, when my friend said, uh, I think you should apply for college. And so then I don't know if I consciously said, okay, what does my body say at that time? But I think it's, I just went that that feels okay. All right. I mean, it's scary, but, and it's not something I feel like I can do easily, but I can do it. You know, there's plenty of things that we do in life that, and you know, this better than anybody that don't feel easy, right. but we, know we can. Yeah. And, um, so we have to give that ourselves that little extra push. But if you, if you're really feeling, asking yourself a question and it's like, no, then, then trust that don't do it. Yeah. Um, I'm glad to hear you describe it this way, because for some people, they have ignored their gut. I'm using your phrase with some air quotes here for so long that they don't even recognize it anymore. They wouldn't recognize what it's like to listen to their gut. So I kind of needed you to explain to them if you've been ignoring this small voice inside of you for so long, pretty soon, you don't even know what that voice sounds like. And it is a, a, it takes a little bit of practice or not practice, but it, it takes a little bit of intentionality. Let me put it that way to start listening to your gut again. Right. I do think it takes practice because I think you can start with small things. You know, you're at the grocery store. Um, hmm, do I need some milk? And then you can listen to your body and, and if it feels comfortable. Maybe I'll have to grab some yeah, milk. Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets, you know, and it gets bigger than that, though. But you have to kind of be quiet and know how to. You can't be listening to your gut where you're having a conversation that's crazy in the room, you know. There's the trick right there. Listening to your gut takes a little bit of quiet uh, introspection. Big word I just used for people. Um, and if it's never, ever, ever quiet around you, it's going to be almost impossible to listen to your gut, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So taking a walk in nature, you know, at night when you lay your head down the pillow or wake up in the morning, you know, those are good times to be quiet and to, to listen. Yeah. Um, 
So let's talk about you went through a lot of trauma as a child, as a teenager. Um, but then you went through this moment of utter helplessness when your daughter Mackenzie was born way early. Can you talk about that and describe um, describe how far along you were and how dangerous this was for her and probably for you as well when she was born as a premature baby? Sure. So I would first of all I'll say that I was a uh, NICU nurse. I was a neonatal intensive care nurse. So I took care of preemies at this for my career. When Mackenzie was born, you were yeah, already. When Mackenzie was born, I was a NICU nurse, and um, so. Yeah, I went into labor at about 22 weeks. Uh, full pregnancy is 40 weeks, and uh, babies can't really live on their own until about 24 weeks, sometimes 23, but yeah. it's pretty rare. Yeah. So um, she was born uh, 25 or 26 weeks. So right in there. Right um, at the very edge of being able to, to survive on her own. Yeah, so this was 93. So uh -huh. this was a while ago. And um, things are have even improved more since then. But that, then it was still really edgy whether or not she could survive. And she was one pound, 12 ounces. So she oh, was my tiny. goodness. Yeah. Because size of a Pepsi can basically. Basically weighed as much as a loaf of bread. Yeah, a small loaf of bread. Right. A, a bun. So anyway, um, so she was born and uh, she was in she was basically four months early and was in the NICU for a really uh, four months, a little over four months and came home when she was about six pounds. She was really sick, uh, oh, you know, no. for about five yeah. years. She had, um, she was on a feeding tube for five years, oxygen for three wow. years. She was just, uh, and you know, PTOT surgery is almost, almost died a couple of times. And, um, I say that very cavalier because it's been in the distance enough now that, um, and she's doing great by the way. She's I was just about to ask you that. So is she yeah, beautiful and healthy and yes, yeah, she's amazing. She just All had right. a, she's a photographer, a freelance photographer in Nashville and she just had an art show last Thursday that was amazing. So she's, she's doing awesome yeah. and really, uh, she's an inspiration truly, but, um, yeah, but it was rough. And um, I, that's really where I started to kind of hone in on trauma with uh, kids, because I saw the trauma in her after she, you know, in the hospital after she came home, saw the trauma in me. So I decided to go back to school and uh, study trauma. So I got my master's in psychiatric mental health nursing. Yeah, I just wanted to, to talk about that for a moment because you described a lot about what this was like physically for Mackenzie, but I wanted to I wanted our listeners to hear what this emotionally and mentally was like for you having a baby that you can do absolutely nothing to preserve her life. It's totally out of your hands and the trauma and the helplessness that goes along with that. It was uh I mean, helplessness is the perfect word. And it was terrifying. I mean, really terrifying. And I, you know, they say that um, a preemie moms and dads, if you've been through trauma in the pri prior to the birth mm -hmm. of your baby, which you have been through a lot of it. Yeah. Um, then you're more likely to develop PTSD. And I did. I developed PTSD. I didn't recognize it for a long time, uh -huh. but I had it. And so I, I had this obsession with getting her well and doing everything I could to make sure she was going to be okay. Cause I knew because of my education, yeah, 
sure. what we're up against. And so emotionally, I was filled with anxiety, um, you know, obsessed with her and um, was she going to be okay in the next day and uh, the next hour and the next month. Um, so that was, that was pretty hard. It was hard on her. And I think it was hard on my family too, uh -huh. because I was obsessed with it. So, um, it, OCD developed a little bit, anxiety developed, uh, in and out of depression, yeah. which he wasn't doing well. Yeah. Um, you know, and I call it kind of a chaotic brain when you go through PTSD or trauma, even if it's not PTSD, but trauma, you get kind of chaotic and it's very hard to settle your system. It's very hard to, and it's neurologic. It's not just emotional. It's neurologic. Your system has a hard time calming yeah. down. Yeah. And I had a hard time. Sleep doesn't come so easily, you know, so all those things were happening to me and to her, I mean, um, I, it was only, it was more my, the, my mother's eyes, uh -huh. you know, seeing her seeing, well, she's, not doing this right, or this isn't developed quick enough, or, you know, so she looked really great in so many ways, although she didn't eat. That was the biggest thing. That was her trauma. Uh, that's how she, sh it showed up in her. Really? It, she wouldn't put any food in her mouth. Hence that she had the feeding yeah, tube. Yeah, five her. years on a feeding tube is, I, that's incredible. Well, she didn't need it for, for the full five years. Uh -huh. So she started actually putting food in her mouth at about 18 months. Uh -huh. What we did is we, she had a, a pump, a feeding pump at yeah. night. And um, what we did is uh, we started feeding her ice cream. <laughs> How uh, do you to make chocolate yeah. chip to which she still really loves today. Um, but, and I, the doctor said, give it to her whenever she wants it. Just don't let, don't have any control over it. Let her eat whatever she wants when it, ice cream, only ice cream, if that's all she'll eat. And so we started with that. And then she, we barely, you know, I, my husband's Italian. So they're all about food. Oh right? yeah. And so they were always slipping her this or slip, trying to get her to eat this. They were sure they could get her to eat, right? <laughs> Got a spicy meatball for her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So anyway, um, it was, it was my sister-in-law who I think really gave her the idea that food was comfortable, food yeah. was easy and it, it was safe. So, um, today she's not even a hundred pounds. Um, and she will eat a giant plate <laughs> of pasta followed <laughs> by a huge bowl of chocolate chip ice cream. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but she doesn't eat a lot, so she'll go until noon without eating uh -huh. any food. So she still has, you know, just, it's not typical, but I would say it's, um, it's okay. She's not starving or anything. She's not anorexic. She's yeah. just, tiny. so, so anyway, that's how the trauma showed up in her and socially. She had a hard time socially when she was growing up, you know, um, kind of bullied a little bit more than she should have been. Well, any child who looks a little bit different, comes from a little mm -hmm. bit different background, gets bullied, unfortunately, in our day and age. So Yeah, exactly. Um, you, you went through trauma as a child. You had a child that went through trauma. But for people that are not aware of this, you lived through, you basically had a front row seat to one of the greatest uh, greatest is a terrible word for it. One of the biggest examples of childhood trauma in American history. I'm talking about the school shooting at Columbine High School 
For those of you who are not making the connection, if you don't remember it, go do a quick Google search on what this was like and what happened because the entire world held their breath during this event. But Mm -hmm. Columbine High School is a suburb of Denver and you're living in Denver at the time. Can you just go back uh, and describe what this would have been like for you having a front row seat to one of the biggest childhood traumatic events in our country's history, at least school shooting related. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that's a little bit hard to describe, to be honest. I think um, that I still remember the day I remember, um, you know, being outside and hearing, worrying in my garden and hearing the event that had happened. And my, my kids, you know, were in school at the time and my husband, uh, one of the women that worked with him, she, her son was uh, was stuck in the school. The daughter had gotten out, but he was stuck in the school. Oh, yeah. He was alive or not for a while, for a few hours. Um, and we, we actually lived right down the street from Columbine for a little while, not when the event happened, but we were really close to there. The experience in the city was just um, devastation. It was shock. It was, uh, how could this happen? And what's sad is that it's been repeated in history so yeah. many times yeah. now. And even in Colorado, it's happened um, not far from Columbine, actually, mm-hmm. about five or six years ago at Arapahoe High School. Yeah. And it was, I mean, we just kind of, when that happens, we're all shaking. You know, in our bodies, you shake. That's what trauma does. It's, it's a natural physical response. Your whole body just kind of quivers in the fear of it and the concern for the kids and watching over and over. I had an old friend who was a squat on the squat team uh-huh. that day. So when you're that close and then we, we eventually had the Aurora shooting that's really close yeah, to where I live yeah. too. And that was terrifying. But to have it happen to kids was just uncomprehensible. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask, Diane, is because if if there is such a thing as a world expert on childhood trauma, there may be others that have a little bit more education, but you've lived it. And I mean, you lived it as a child. You had a child that lived it. You had a front row seat to it. And you've taken your experiences as terrible as they are, and you've started to do good with them. So I want you to tell people about the Imagine Project, how it started, what got this, um, what gave you the desire to even begin to move towards the Imagine Project? Well, just um, before I do that, let me just explain. I love to define trauma because sure, please do. How, how I define trauma is uh, anything that overwhelms your coping mechanism. So if I face something that I've never faced, that I don't know, nobody's ever mentioned it to me, I've never seen anybody face it, and my system does not know how to deal with it, Uh that's going to get stuck. It's going to get stuck in my body, it's going to get stuck in my mind, in my heart, and that's traumatic. You may, you know, be able to handle something very differently than I can handle it because of your experience and vice versa. So um, children are more susceptible to trauma because they have less coping mechanisms. Yeah. Less coping mechanisms. Their frontal lobe isn't as developed, so they can't process it as easily. So, um, so 
trauma is much more prevalent in uh -huh. our society with kids than we realize. There's actually research that shows that, um, that 50% of all kids have a traumatic experience before the age of 17. It was a huge study. Really? 50%? 50% have at least one traumatic experience. Wow. And then it gets even higher if you get into rural school or uh, urban and rural. Actually, uh -huh. they have a lot of uh, trauma in rural school districts as well. And um, so it's really an important issue to understand and address, which I didn't understand the, you know, the uh, statistics or anything until I had, I went back to school and started. Uh -huh. But I did know that, um, so the Imagine Project actually started because when I was uh, dealing with McKenzie, I was speaking to nurses and doctors and other parents about the trauma of prematurity. Nobody talked about trauma in babies mm -hmm. at that time. Everybody thought that babies didn't remember, you know, yeah. uh, they don't remember anything until they're three when they can verbally, you know, talk about it. And that's not true. Like they, they even didn't give pain medication for a while to babies because they didn't think babies would remember it. I know that was even happening in <laughs> the nineties. They it's can't crazy. ask for help, so let's just don't give them any. That's crazy. Yeah, I remember it anyway. So, I mean, you're like, whoa, I witnessed that. So, as a NICU nurse. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so when I would speak, I would say, I would talk all these statistics, and then I I knew if I just told them my story, they would think it was just because I was a preemie, uh, a NICU nurse, uh -huh. and had a preemie. So I asked other parents on the internet to tell me their story using the word imagine. It just was an idea that I had. Why imagine, by the way? Is there a, a, a something attached to that word? It was just an idea at the time. But okay. what I realize now, the word imagine is a safety word. It's a word that when you tell your story using the word imagine to begin every sentence, it's very different than when you tell it uh, just with as it's a regular story. Okay. So, I thought for sure you were going to say because of John Lennon's song. So that's... Uh... <laughs> well, I wish that was true, but, and it could be, you know, I mean, everybody relates to that yeah, song, Yeah. but um, so anyway, the word imagine is really a powerful word. It also brings in the right side of your brain, which yeah. is the healing side of your brain. So, um, so anyway, I would speak and I would tell the, my own story and imagine, and then I would tell all these other stories and everybody would, nobody remembered the statistics, but they remembered the stories. Yeah. So um, I, I thought, well, what else can I do with this? And so in 2010, I decided to take it bigger and I wrote uh, a book. I traveled to different parts of the country and interviewed ordinary people with extraordinary stories and amazing stories. There's a story of, uh, of Columbine in there, a woman that was in Columbine. There's a uh, former military in the, in the book. All and, right. Yeah. And so there's some really great stories of people overcoming and doing great things in the world. Um, and then after the book came out, people were saying, well, this, this is really healing to write my story like this. So I thought, well, do I, what do I do with this? Do I work with people, with veterans? Do I work uh -huh. with uh, people who experience suicide? And then I thought, well, kids, you know, man, if I would have had this, how, much more easier my life would have been if I would have had some healing when I was young. Right. And so I, um, I asked a friend who was outside of Denver, um, an eighth grade science teacher to see if his kids could write their imagined stories. And they did, they wrote, uh, incredible stories and of, you know, of being bullied, of loss, of, uh, parents not paying enough attention uh -huh. to them, parents paying too much attention to them, just, 
But what was really striking and sad is in this room of 28 kids, um, three kids talked about suicide. Ideation. Oh my goodness. So I was like, whoa, and a little bit of a panic there because yeah. we realized that it was a window into the psyche of our kids. Uh -huh. So I thought, well, I'm going to keep going. So I did, traveled wherever I could, and uh, different states, working with uh, kids who are homeless to affluent kids. And um, I saw that, you know, it's not just the at-risk kids. It's every child has a story. Yeah. And every child has a story to tell. And it could be a story of they lost their puppy dog, or it could be the story of their grandmother or grandfather passing or, um, you know, something uh, somebody said to them. But it's an important story for them. Yeah. And what's important about the Imagine Project is that it, uh, it asks them to tell the, the hard part of their story, but then we are asking them to imagine what's possible instead. So step four, there's seven steps. And step four is, um, how do you want that story to end? Yeah. How, what can you imagine in your life that's going to be different? So they get an opportunity to see that they don't have to be defined by their story. Uh -huh. and it's really cool because they flip and they see it. And then all of a sudden this light comes on and they're like, wow, this is really me, not that story. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's I that's how it only goes. I, I like the fact that you um, give people, especially kids, an opportunity to kind of picture a different future. You've gone through something difficult in the past. Your past doesn't, or your future doesn't have to look like this. Um, and I also want to just point out, hey, your first book, The Imagine Project, when you just started putting those stories of courage, hope, and love down, it got attention and it won awards which leads to the second book. You're now empowering kids, the Imagine Project, empowering kids to rise above their drama, trauma, and stress. Um, I asked you about this a little bit before we began talking, but can you give our listeners an example of what this is like? Can you give them an example of one of those stories? Of the children's? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, this, this comes from a, a fifth grader um, in, a, in a very well-to-do school, actually. That's... Um, in Denver. Okay. Uh, imagine listening to a book being read by your teacher. Imagine being depressed when a horrible word about black people comes up and the boys around you start laughing. Imagine that trust is being broken and friendships being lost. Imagine a heart filled with empathy to the top. Imagine so much empathy that people not involved start to tear up. Imagine a room filled with sorrow and depression. Imagine apologies made and hearts, hearts melting into one. Imagine friendships restored, but trust still lost. Imagine being broken and blown in the wind. Imagine trust being earned and things are back to normal, but there still might be broken hearts, but still a sense of belonging. Imagine trust being earned, hearts put back together with trust and friendship. Imagine hope. Wow. So this, uh, this little boy um you said he, that was a fifth grader yeah wow, that's very, a very bright fifth grader right there yes very poetic and beautiful and um so this uh actually he was a girl that wrote this i'm forgive me but i think um <laughs> the little girl forgive me to i won't mention her name but she um she went on to start a black lives uh, movement in her school because she and to give a background on this little girl she was uh, almost mute until she was five years old. 
And she could not, she was so deeply shy that she uh-huh. couldn't speak. And um, her mom, we've interviewed her mom uh, since she wrote this. And she um, she has really opened up and now she wants to be an attorney and the whole oh, thing. Oh, that's beautiful. Her mom really believes that it was the Imagine Project that helped her to switch because it gave her a voice. It gave her the ability to speak her truth and to see what was happening in the world and to be able to say, hey, you know, look at this. And it isn't okay, but look at how we we came together as a room. Mm -hmm. This incredible teacher that did this with these kids, and he had started the Imagine Project um, prior to this in this uh, classroom. So they had this as a tool. And when this book was read and this happened, they were able to use the Imagine Project to process what was going on in the room and help bring the kids back together again. Yeah. And every and the kids apologized and they all Oh yeah. Yeah. So that was cool. It sounds like this fifth grade girl, she really does have a very powerful voice. It just happens to be written maybe more than spoken. Um mm-hmm. but wow, what a great example this uh, what a great example uh, that you, you used of what these stories are like. Um, this project is starting to get, get some attention, right? So you got a chance to start telling people about it, maybe even appearing on a couple of prominent uh, talk shows about it. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and so that's great. I'm here with you, but we, um, yeah, we have reached probably a half a million kids across the world. Man, that's amazing. Um, we're in 50 states and uh, 24 countries. Um, it's real easy. It's free. The Imagine Project is free. Yeah, it's- I hope you heard that. It is not only powerful, but it's free. Exactly. So you just go to theimagineproject.org and download the uh, journals. And then um, they, and there's a seven step process there for K through 12, and they're um, there's also a, an adult journal, so anybody can download it and use it. And it's meant, I mean, the reason why I've set it up for teachers primarily is because they reach the most yeah, kids. Sure. And so it's meant to do as part of a writing project in a classroom. And fifth grade is a really sweet spot, but it works uh-huh. well for all ages. Um, so yeah, it's a really powerful, um, it brings camaraderie. I think uh, in Columbine, I mean, looking back in reference to Columbine had uh, the two gentlemen that created, you know, that caused it uh, uh-huh. names are eluding me, which is okay. Uh, they had, they had the opportunity to speak their truth and to, you know, to make amends with these other people that why they were so angry or they'd written this story and their, their parents could see what they were, what was troubling them. You know, it, it may have been a whole different experience. And that's what I believe happens with the Imagine Project. It creates camaraderie. It creates love. And within a classroom, within a group of kids, I do believe it saved lives. And I've been told by um, principals that they believe that it could, you know, prevent uh, suicide. Yeah. It's bullying. I know that for a fact. I don't, we don't have statistics. Unfortunately, it's pretty hard to do all that. But it's, uh, it's a really powerful process to, and to tell a child that they're okay, you know, and they, they hear somebody else, they get to tell somebody else this painful part of their heart. And then somebody listens to it, and it creates a connection that says, I'm okay, I'm going to be all right. I mean, had I had somebody tell me I was going to be okay, even though I'd just lost my mom, 
you know, man, that would have been a huge relief for me. Oh, yeah. It would have been a yeah. peace for me, you yeah. know, that uh, helped me to, to feel better about myself yeah. and, and dream about possibility. Yeah. So that's what the word imagine asked you to do is to dream. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like it's heavily built around journaling. Is that right? It is. Well, it is a writing process. Yes. But all around the word imagine. Okay. Well, I, I have this little, uh, I talked uh, about this uh, just briefly, but I have this little part of the show. I try to do it each week or each episode and I call it my high five segment. And this is my way of just describing kind of how I um, approach uh, the topic of discussion. I was thinking about this um, episode today and I was thinking about journaling. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, Diane, but I am a published author, but I hate journaling. So I got this seg segment. Um, I want to give you now my high five reasons why I am the world's worst, literally, if there is such a thing, the world's worst journaling at journaling not journalist, but it, at journaling. And number one is because I, I would like to say uh, it's just because I don't have the time, but everybody who journals tells you that's a lie. You have the time to journal if it's important to you. So I try to argue my way with myself of saying, I don't journal, Jeff, because you just don't have the time. But the truth is I've got the time. I just don't want to spend the time doing it. Number two on my list is I would tend to say I don't enjoy writing, and I mean literally pencil and paper writing. I don't mind so much typing. I just don't like number three on the list, writing or talking about me. I love to write. I love to uh, put uh, words on paper about other people. I just don't enjoy writing or talking about me. And when I sit down to journal, I am immediately struck with writer's block because if I'm talking about me, I don't even want to talk about it, which brings me to number four. Yeah. Which brings me to number four on my list. I believe it or not, am the world's worst at spelling and grammar. If there isn't a team of people looking at what I just wrote, it will be a disaster. Anything that I put in the public eye is is virtually it, it will look like a third grader wrote that and didn't even go through a spelling class. So um, when I write and journal, I know I'm just journaling for me. I also know that I don't have to focus so much on the spelling and grammar, but it's just a vivid reminder. I don't even know how to spell some very simple words. I just uh, uh, expect spell check on my computer to figure out what I'm trying to say and auto correct it for me. Um, which brings me down to the number, the biggest reason why I don't journal, because I'm always afraid that journal is one day going to fall into the wrong hands. And I'm not talking like national secrets kind of stuff. I'm thinking somebody's going to read this journal years from now and think this is the biggest idiot that's ever lived on planet Earth. Who would possibly spell that word that way about himself? So... When I start thinking about journaling, these are the top five reasons why I'm the world's worst at this and have started and failed journaling, no exaggeration, 20 times in the last, I don't know, 20 years. Do I get to respond? Do I get yes, to please do. <laughs> okay, so none of those work. So, I know, I know, I know. They're all lame excuses, but it's still my uh, excuse. Well, the, the journals are digital, so you, if you want, so you can use it, put it, do it all on the computer, so you don't have to worry about writing, spell check. 
we tell kids all the time, it's not about grammar, punctuation, or spelling. You just write, right? So it's all coming from your heart. Uh, time, I get the time. So this is my challenge to you, okay? So I say that you you download the journal, and you don't even have to do the journal. I'll just tell you right now, write one story about, you can even go as deep as your experience in the military, or you can do it something lighter about something else. And every word starts with the, the word imagine. So mm -hmm. you begin, imagine, you know. All uh, the people. That's what I was going to do. All the people. Well, you can start there if you want to, but imagine a dream of becoming in the uh, ranger, right? An army ranger. And then you kind of continue and you, you write it until you want to stop. And hopefully naturally it'll flip into the positive. If not, remember to end it into a positive. Yeah. The, the last one can always be imagine hope like the fifth graders do. But um, once you do one, and I would love it if you even would accept my challenge and to put it, uh, below this interview on your your web page or something somewhere doesn't have to be long it could be long if you want it but it could be short and then um, every time you want a journal do it in your head using the word imagine if you're in the car and you want you're thinking about something you just say imagine you start writing an imagined story about it until it flips into the positive and then you don't have to write it you don't have an excuse you could just be driving there you go it's, you can't do that with regular journaling, but you can do it with Imagine. You're brilliant, Diane. You just made this sound so simple. Would you totally do this for me? Because the way that you just described it sounded so easy and so simple. Um, I if I read your book, I could. <laughs> well, listen, I want people to know about the power of journaling. And that's one of the reasons why I was excited about this episode, because you're helping a lot of people. The Imagine Project, as you've just described, has been you know, spread all over the country and around the world, helping hundreds of thousands of kids right now. And I really want people to learn from you how um, journaling, not just the Imagine Project, but how journaling can help them deal with some of their own traumas. So can you just describe a little bit about the power of journaling to get through some of the traumas that they've experienced in the past? Right. So there's a lot of research on expressive writing, which is journaling. And it shows that for kids, it can increase their GPA, it can decrease dropout rates, it can uh, lessen anxiety, it can help, with, and this for all ages, it can help with anxiety and depression, lessen anxiety and depression, it can help with PTSD symptoms, it helps minimize PTSD symptoms, it helps improve immune function. So we know from research that it's really great. And it also just gives you a voice to just talk about stuff that you might not have somebody there to listen, right? And you don't want somebody to hear everything. You don't want right. somebody to read everything. I'm the same way, to be honest. I'm the same way about writing. I haven't written in a journal because I don't want everybody to read it. I do have imagined stories on my computer that maybe somebody will read, maybe they won't. I don't know. But anyway, um, they, you know, it, the Imagine Project process is just simplifies journaling. Yeah. Makes that uh, all those reasons that you mentioned, uh, they don't work because it, it's so simple. And I often now do imagine stories in my head if I, something's really struggling. You know, I'm struggling with something, so I don't have to write it down. But um, I would say there's many, many benefits for all levels. Yeah. And what's used in prisons, it's used in. Uh, I had it 
during COVID, a hospital clean staff used it because it was so hard during right. COVID. Um, I've used, lots of counselors use it. So you can use it in any format. It doesn't have to be schools. But um, yeah, I would encourage everybody to give it a try. Just think about the word imagine. Well, thank you, by the way, for uh being uh, honest with me. And I just want to point out to people, you're an award-winning author. You now have two award-winning authors that tell you we're both terrible at journaling. Don't enjoy journaling, but there is some power. I would be the first guy to admit, I wouldn't have tried it 20 times if I didn't recognize there's a lot of power in journaling. So I'm going to take you up on this challenge, but here's the deal. I'm not going to write it and send it out there for everybody because you'd laugh at my spelling. On the way home today in my car, I'm going to pull out the voice recorder on my phone and I'm going to record an Imagine story. And here's how it's going to go. I'm going to start it like that famous movie trailer voice, Imagine a World. I can't even do it. I can't get down there, Dylan. I'm trying to make my voice go really deep so I can do that Imagine a World thing. And then I'll just take off and run from there. I hope so. I hope you do. And then, you know, let me just close it with step seven is Every day, a 30 day challenge where every day for 30 days, you write down three things you're grateful for, three things you want to imagine. Your I life. love that challenge. One act of kindness every day for 30 days, which changes brain function. We know it changes uh, neural pathways. So um, at that would be another challenge. Yeah. I would put into everybody out there. Brilliant. Because I was about to ask you to give people one piece of advice. This episode is going to air not far after New Year, um, New Year's and people, lots of people all over the world make New Year's resolutions. They know that they're not going to follow through with them, but they make them anyway. And then they get frustrated and disappointed because they made a New Year's resolution. And then like 0.5 minutes later, they've already broken their New Year's resolution. So I want you to take, uh, if you're listening to this, I want you to take up Diane's challenge. Would you, for the next 30 days, spend time and think about three things that you're thankful or grateful for, and every day for 30 days, think of those three things, whatever they are, and start to focus on something different. Right. So new thing, it could be every day, it could be something different, what you're grateful for. And then every day what you want to imagine in your life, three things, and then do one act of kindness, which could just be smiling at somebody, smiling at a stranger, you know, just we're opening the door yeah. or saying hello. So all of us can afford to do one act of kindness that doesn't necessarily cost any money that will make the world a little bit brighter place. But this episode has been so helpful and so practical because any of us can, all of us can spend the next 30 days just thinking about three things that you're grateful for, you're happy about, you're, um, you're excited for, and maybe that will focus uh, your attention on the good instead of spending the next 30 days focused on what's difficult or depressing in your life. Because certainly you've got those difficult, depressing things too, but don't focus on those. Focus on the good. Yes. Thank you so much. Great advice. It has been so good to be with you today, Diane. I'm going to, I'm seriously going to do it. I'm going to pull out the voice recorder. I'm going to start my um, Imagine story with that deep uh, voice that I'm not even going to try right now from the movie theaters. And I'm just going to run with it from there. Yeah. 
Yay. I hope if you feel so inclined to share it, I would love to see it. But if you don't, that's okay yeah. too. Hey, so people that want to know more about you personally or the Imagine Project, we're going to put a link to the website at the in the post notes to this. But if they want to know more about the Imagine Project or they want to know more about you, how do they get connected? Yes, um, go to the website. The best way to get to me, or I mean, you can email me. Imagine Project is a nonprofit, so it's it's available for anybody and everybody. And just go to the, don't forget to put the in front of Imagine Project. So theimagineproject.org. Yeah, for those of you who are driving, theimagineproject.org. Or those of you who are listening to this, you'll see it in the notes to this broadcast, theimagineproject.org. Get connected there. Yes. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks for being part of this episode today, Diane. Hey, you just heard it directly from Diane. Would you take the 30-day challenge? Over the next 30 days, every day, would you find three things that you're happy about, three things that you're excited about, three things that are good in your life? And after doing this for 30 days, chances are your 2022 will look better and be different too. I'm going to take the 30-day challenge. I hope you will as well. If you found us for the first time, maybe this is your first time on our podcast, I want to ask you to go ahead and subscribe. You can go to any of our social media channels. Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. And why don't you go ahead and subscribe on social media? If you've been following us for a while, would you give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform? Just tell the world how awesome this podcast is. And by the way, I've got a free gift for you. We just created a PDF book called The Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. It's totally free. All you got to do to get this download is just go to unbeatablearmy.com, join the email list, and become part of The Unbeatable Army too. Thanks for being with us. I hope you have a great week. See you next time.